Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always is a man that believes carolers are just panhandlers with good voices. He is the captain. You show up to my door singing those songs, prepare to get a mistletoe or a moose knuckle dropped on your face. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. All week long, we have been in the spirit of the holidays. We are drinking Christmas ale by the great people up at Great Lakes Brewing Company, garage grade, still four out of five bottle caps. With an ABV of 7.5 and a healthy dose of holiday spices, Great Lakes Christmas Ale will have you sliding down chimneys and scaring the neighbors in no time. And Christmas Ale was brought to us by some of our very good friends. First up, we have Courtney in Wenatchee, Washington. And next up, we have Jessica in Picton, Ontario. And we also have Deva from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And a big we like your jib to Jen and Lisa in Tifton, Georgia. And a shout out to Kelly in Columbia, Tennessee. Also in Tennessee, we have Meredith and Emily in Chattanooga. And last but not least, a shout out to husband and wife Jim and Lynn down in Texas. So, of course, a big happy... Old Jim, old Jim and Lynn. Old Jim and Lynn. So, of course, a big happy holidays cheers to everyone out there. Go to TrueCrimeGarage.com, and that's where you will find our beer fund, our blog, and our store. Mm-hmm. And just a reminder, Parts Unknown was having the can food drive. Remember this, Nick? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, our members of Parts Unknown thought it was used can food drive. So uh, we discontinued that. We'll have to try again next year, Captain. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
obviously we're uh, two years from the from the date of the incident. Uh, the case has been actively being investigated by the Division of Police. And a couple months ago, we turned our investigation over to the prosecutor's office, and uh, they have convened a grand jury, and they have been uh, bringing people into the grand jury and taking testimony from uh, from people in the grand jury. Uh, as far as uh, what that testimony is, as everyone knows, that's that's secret. We don't know what that is, but uh, there is no one person or persons that we're actually looking at. We're just trying to gather as much information as we can. Are you any, do you feel that you're any closer? Well, I, from, from an investigative process, I feel like we're a little closer because, um, you know, before we didn't have uh, enough or we didn't, uh, the prosecutors didn't feel we had enough to even convene a grand jury. So, yeah, I do feel like that we are a little bit closer. But, you know, as you know, we're, you know, have to follow the, the letter of the law and provide everybody their, uh, their constitutional rights. But, yeah, I do, uh, I'm optimistic that we are getting closer. And how does the, um of attorney. Well, I don't, you know that those are those are three separate uh, events that took place. Right now, it really has nothing to do with this. But you know, obviously, she was down here to meet him. So you know, that's something that we definitely have to look at and something that we have looked at. But as far as him being indicted, those are three separate issues in three different counties that he's going to answer for. Aliza Sherman was stabbed outside her lawyer's office in Cleveland, Ohio in March 2013, just two days before her divorce trial was scheduled to begin. It starts with a chilling call to 911 after a man heard Aliza's screams and rushed to her aid. Aliza Sherman, a mother of four, was in the alleyway of an office building, bleeding from 11 stab wounds. It was Kenny Shepard who ran to her. He said she was having trouble standing. She fell to the ground. Kenny did everything he could to try to help her. Aliza, who was just 53 years old, died in a hospital emergency room. She had her purse with her when she was found, so police rule out robbery as motive. The savage attack left her best friend Jan Lash in shock. Jan spoke with Aliza just an hour before she was stabbed to death. Jan told reporters that they had their usual conversation adding Aliza was a little anxious because she was going to court soon. That's why Aliza Sherman went downtown on that Sunday. She was there to visit her divorce lawyer. Jan Lash told reporters that she offered to go with her, but Aliza said no thanks. Jan Lash and some of Aliza's family say Aliza Sherman wanted to change attorneys, but it was far too late in her case. The meeting that was scheduled for that Sunday at her attorney Gregory Moore's request, well, it now looks like that meeting may have never have happened. Early in this case, it was suspected that Eliza was killed after leaving Moore's office, but now it appears she was walking to possibly enter the building, not exit the building. We will get into that a little bit more later. What was apparent very early on in this investigation was that Eliza Sherman's murder revealed a family torn apart. She and her husband, Sanford Sherman, a retired ophthalmologist, was facing a contentious divorce proceedings that were going to take place that week, scheduled to start just two days after her death. The investigation turned up a surveillance video from a nearby parking garage showing a person fleeing the scene of Eliza's murder 
covered nearly head to toe in dark colored clothing. The video does not tell us much, leaving only speculation as to the person's race and gender. Police searched for a murder weapon at the scene and on the rooftops of nearby buildings and turned up nothing. They searched the Sherman residence for knives, but none of them matched the murder weapon. Investigators interviewed employees in the floors above the walkway where she was killed. They also questioned attorney Gregory Moore and members of the Sherman family and still did not have evidence to put together a good suspect in this case. Now, just a few weeks after the murder, the Justice for Eliza movement began. This was started by Eliza's daughter that she was so close to, Jennifer. They teamed up with the Cuyahoga County Crime Stoppers to offer a $25,000 reward for information in the case and promoted it on a billboard near East 14th Street and Carnegie Avenue. In July, Jennifer gathered more than 100 women for a self-defense class at the Beachwood Community Center. Then one month later, in hopes that someone would come forward with information, the Crime Stoppers reward was increased to $50,000. Jennifer also replaced her father as an executor of Eliza Sherman's estate. Jennifer was very adamant about finding out whoever was responsible for her mother's murder and making sure that everything, and I do mean everything, would come to light. Now, I want everyone to return their seats to a fully upright position because it's about to get hairy, okay? Long hair, don't care. So two months after the first anniversary of Elisa's death, Jennifer Sherman filed a civil suit against her father. In it, she sought to recover more than $2 million Sanford allegedly funneled out of a joint bank account that he held with Elisa while she was still alive. Jennifer's civil suit claimed that Sanford conspired with five unnamed individuals to hide more than $2 million from Eliza by moving it from their joint bank account into one in Eliza's name. According to the court records, this was a Merrill Lynch account that was in question, and this was discovered by Eliza after she hired forensic accountant Jeffrey Firestone two months, just two months before she was killed. Right, so how this works, uh, being a former banker, is normally when you're going through a divorce, if you have money or some wealth, Mm -hmm. then what they do is they hire basically um, a detective, if you will, to go through financial chains to see, you know, what accounts they have. Because when you go to get the divorce, you're going to say, well, let's just split up our accounts. Well, everything that you earn during that wedding is then in debate if you don't have a prenup so basically what they found out was he was taking you know millions of dollars but what was weird here was he was still put in an account with her name on it yeah so there she and just with her name being on it she's entitled to that money yeah, and, and it's it's a little crazy. That's why we'll have to get into it, but you're exactly right. That's just what you do. You cannot always trust everyone to come to the forefront and say, look, lay everything on the table. This is what I have. This is what you have. This is what we have. Right. Let's just divvy it up 50-50. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes people have accounts and they have funds and things that, that even their significant other who's supposed to be the closest one to them mm-hmm. may not be aware of. Well, if they were that close, they probably wouldn't be getting a divorce anyways. So, 
Well, according to the lawsuit, Eliza's claim was that she was not aware of this account at any time until it was discovered by the forensic accountant. Mm -hmm. She was unaware of this account when it was opened in her name back in 2000. And according to emails she sent to her attorney, Gregory Moore, Eliza was also unaware of having ever signed a power of attorney. This power of attorney that was signed regarding this account gave Sanford control over the funds and the account itself. He, he might have had an inside person, and if he had an inside person, then they can basically create whatever accounts they want. It'd be all fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, just to let you know how it would work. I mean, you have to, you can't just go into a bank and open up an account in somebody else's name. You have to have their ID, their information, their signature. Uh, they have to be present most of the time. Um, so he had to know somebody on the inside. Okay, I know this episode is titled Suspects, and we are talking about forensic accountants, bank accounts, and power of attorneys. Mm -hmm. But this account, just this one account that was discovered just two months before Elisa's murder in cold blood on the cold streets of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are talking a large sum of money. I'm sure not quite $2 million after everything has moved around and transfer fees and penalties and all of that stuff. Well, think about it. We've had so many cases where, you know, the motive has been money, but that could be as little as a thousand dollars, or you know, a couple hundred thousands of, of dollars in a, a life insurance or something. But here we have at least one. Uh, you know, not only are they dividing up all the money, but on top of that, we have this extra fund of two million. You don't think two million is enough reason? I mean, he's already being nefarious by not even telling her about the count anyways. Well, Dr. Evil threatened a lot of horrible things for just one million dollars. Mm-hmm. So let's keep in mind here, this is just one account. And one that I must say, I must say this, allegedly found. But who knows, there could be more of these accounts. Right. Of course, this leads to motive, a motive for Sanford to have his wife killed. If their divorce proceedings don't go to court, does this ca- account come to light? You know, is well, anyone else aware of this account in the Sherman family? Well, right, but we have the one account that's $2 million. That's great and all, but you have motive to begin with. Two days uh, after her murder, what was going to happen? The divorce proceeding. Mm-hmm. And, and like the judge said, we're not going to have any more continuance. This is going forward. We're not going to waste any more time. So half your stuff is going to be, and it's such a weird situation to go through, to have a court tell you what is yours and what is hers. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what's going to happen to him. And, and let, if she's alive, that's what's happening in two days. So that that's motive by itself. On top of that, you got to account that's $2 million. Well, in $2 million, that is a lot of late night tacos, my friends. That's a lot of cheddar. Okay, but but to be fair, we should at least present the other side of the coin, right? So Sanford has always stated in regards to this account that has been called into question that one, he told Eliza about this account. Mm-hmm. That that when he had explained it to her, she had fully a full understanding of that account. And two, that account was used mostly for family expenses. Everyone, anyone in this case that I could find statements from, and this included persons that sided with Sanford and liked him, and Mm -hmm. also those that did not. 
They all say it was the understanding that Sanford was primarily responsible for paying the family's bills. Right. So Sanford says this account paid the family's household bills. And we're talking about that, you know, that we spoke of that almost 4,900 square foot home. I'm sure that Mm -hmm. that really nice home came with a really nice mortgage. Right. And the account, according to Sanford, was also used for credit cards and tuition payments as well. Yeah, which you have some kids in college, so those are going to be big payments. In motions filed in the court, this motion contended that these funds from this account were not used for family purposes, but in fact they were used for strippers, maybe another lover, trips, and a defamation suit that Eliza never knew about. Okay, lover, lover. Okay, so we need some detail here, right? Yeah, because on one side he's saying, "Hey, I'm I'm using this for my kids' college," well, but you know, but he's also using this to look at some titties. Well, out comes the sleazy stuff. All mm-hmm. right, let's get sleazy. Okay, so there is believed to have been a trip taken, and I have a little, I have a little, I called this into question a little bit. Well, we kind of talked about it yesterday. He would take these trips to New York and Florida. Yeah. Well, okay, so this is what the court documents state. There was a trip that was taken to New York City sometime between 2007 and 2009. Mm-hmm. That seems a little random to me. But anyway, Sanford <laughs> was, Sherman. There's a trip taken. It was sometime uh, in these window. two or three year window. Yeah. You know, in these 24 months, he took a trip. This uh, That Sanford Sherman paid for, I guess, using this account. On this trip, it's thought that he and a friend um they spent quote unquote well 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 no well we haven't got to the friend quote unquote yet we're not to this this was an actual real friend okay it's thought that he and one of his friends spent several days with a woman friend that sanford had become more than friends with Mm. regarding wait wait so him and his friend were hanging out with a lady friend correct double dicking from my understanding it's not that kind of party Anyway, on this trip, uh, they spent several days, or he spent several days with a woman that uh, supposedly he had become more than friends with. Anyway, regarding the defamation suit, this involves Samford making sexual advances toward an exotic dancer Mm. and then threatening to kill her and her father. Okay, well. Okay, wait, so he makes sexual advances towards a stripper. mm Mm-hmm. And those go south. And then he threatens to kill her and her father. Correct. What, does that, what does that have this? What does he have to do with anything? Do we know? No, we don't have okay. details about this exact stuff. Okay. Um, it's okay. Here's really what it sounds like to me is that there's some evidence to support some of these claims. Mm-hmm. My guess is that there's not enough evidence to be 100% sure that these things actually happened so while i bet you that he was actually sued by this person and in within the suit the defamation lawsuit there was probably a complaint filed by this individual that sued him Mm -hmm. so what i'm guessing is the information that's being presented in these depositions and court proceedings is information taken from that complaint not not the outcome of right, that right. where he was able to defend himself and say, I only threatened to kill you, not your father. Your father's a great guy. Right. Like um, your, 
Me and, and your then, father golf every weekend. And then the thing regarding the trip to New York City, like you said, he took lots of trips to Florida and to New York City. He he went to Florida because they had property there. Right. Okay. So this New York City trip, when you when you're going to accuse me let's say of taking some strange trip with a woman that I'm not supposed to be involved with. Mm-hmm. And you put a date on it that it happened sometime between 2007 and 2009. My guess is what took place is this. There was a friend. He had a friend and I think the friend's name, first name was Larry. All right, let's go with Larry. <laughs> okay, Larry. He had a friend named Larry that apparently his wife, um, not Larry's wife, Sanford's wife, Eliza, she was not comfortable with Sanford being friends with this guy. And my guess is that when he was out partying with Larry, they probably got in trouble together from time to time. Right. Right. Everybody has that one friend, right? Well, at some point in their relationship, Sanford must have agreed to not hang out with Larry anymore. Right. No more Larry bear. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm guessing took place was that he probably took several trips to New York city during the course of 2007, 2008, and 2009. Mm-hmm. Many of these trips were taken with this friend Larry that he's not supposed to be hanging out with. I'm guessing that they have some information that he was hanging out with this woman on one or more of these trips to New York City. I guess he met this woman in Vero Beach, Florida. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's here's what my thoughts are on this. I'm guessing that Sanford took a lot of trips with his buddy Larry to New York City during the course of those three years. You know, it could be half a dozen, could be a dozen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that he went there under the guise that he's going to be hanging out with his friend. Right. His friend was probably in New York City during those occasions, so it kind of backs up that information. However, he's actually going there to hang out with this woman on at least one of those occasions, according to these documents right but so but just because you're having an affair or doing some sleazy stuff doesn't mean you're a murderer well yeah of course and and that's why you know this stuff doesn't really point toward motive for me however it points towards possible and i'm talking about the defamation lawsuit Mm -hmm. possible violent behavior or threatening behavior at the least right but with that with that lawsuit, though, you have to take into account that it's a, it's a stripper, right? So let's hypothetically, they're hanging out. He's just a customer. Well, you know that's fine. But then she finds out he has some money, and she's using this as a way to get money. I mean, that's, that's very possible. Again, possible violent behavior or possible threatening behavior. Mm-hmm. Just after the two-year anniversary of Elisa's murder. The police, when speaking to the media, reiterated that they believed early on and still believe that this attack, this stabbing death, was committed by someone that knew Eliza and wanted her dead. They also added some new information following this statement, mm-hmm. adding that they have spoke with many people regarding this unsolved case, and some people, and these are people who are not cooperating, let's be clear, that the police are on record as stating these people are people that knew Eliza. Mm-hmm. So they have people that know Eliza. They suspect someone that knew her killed her. And now they have people within that circle that are not cooperating with the police. They, of course, do not name this person or I should say persons because the curious thing here to me 
is they used the word people rather than we have a person that's not cooperating. So more than one. Right, what does but, this mean, Captain? What do you think this means? I mean, who knows? I mean, but the thing is, it's like we've seen this at like like at her memorial service. We've seen her sons state my father had nothing to do with this. So if you have the cops knocking on your door trying to pin this on your father and you don't believe that your father's capable of this or capable of hiring somebody to kill her, mm-hmm. then you're not going to cooperate. I, I get that. So it could be as simple as that. Um, you know, but again, the police aren't releasing who they are. So it's really hard to speculate on any of that. It's very possible that one of the people that they were talking about was in fact, Sanford himself, because while police acknowledge that they spoke with Sanford early in the investigation. Later, they were reported as having said they interviewed Sanford Sherman, but then he hired a prominent defense attorney, and now he's not talking with the right. detectives. And here, here's the thing that happens all the time. We, and it's almost, uh, it's sickening almost how much it happens. It's at the beginning of the case, this person was cooperating. And they gave you all this information. At some point, once you give the police as much information as you can, and then you realize that you're possibly a suspect, but you already gave all your information, why wouldn't you lawyer up? You know right. what I mean? Like, we've seen this in so many cases. And it, and it's like, and I wonder what the demeanor of the cops are in that room. Does it become, does it turn from questioning to interrogation? And if it does, how many times have we seen false confessions? Yeah. You know, so at some point, you know, um, this guy is not a dumb guy. No. If, if they're coming at, you know, again, he was cooperating. I think that's a key thing that people miss is, well, he's not cooperating now. So what? He did before. And he has a lawyer. So now the cops just in law enforcement just have to go through the certain chains to talk to him. He's still willing to talk, but he has a lawyer. So it's, he has know. counsel. He has someone to help him decipher what it is that the police and the interrogators, the investigators are attempting to do. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we've seen setups in the past. Um, the thing here is it's exactly what you said. If, if, if they turn up the heat in the frying pan, every one of us want to jump out of that frying pan, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's possible that Sanford looks like a good suspect here. And I, I understand why people think he should be a good suspect. Of course, mm-hmm. The husband's always the person that you look at first. And then when you find out later he's not cooperating, that makes you question it. Not me personally, but it makes you question it maybe a little more. The money, it would be the motive here for me. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the motive. And then he has some sleazy uh, behavior and kind of some suspicious behavior that he's keeping secrets. So what else is he hiding? I mean, he might be hiding uh, a very vicious person. That, that the public hasn't really seen. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. 
or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, 
you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers, mates. Happy holidays to everybody. Okay. There is another person that the police's statement of persons not cooperating may pertain to. And oddly enough, this is Elisa's attorney, Gregory Moore. This seems to be a very similar situation to the husband's situation. Moore spoke with the police. He was interviewed the day after her murder. He cooperated with the police on that day. He answered their questions. He told the police he was in his office at the time of the attack. Mm -hmm. He was waiting for their scheduled appointment. They were going to go over everything before the trial proceedings were to begin. Now, let's remind ourselves of a couple of things here. The trial proceedings were to take place, from my understanding, two days later on that Tuesday. I should point out here that a few newspaper accounts and publications state that the trial proceedings were actually scheduled for the next day to start that Monday morning. In the Which wake, would make sense why they would meet on a Sunday. Correct. And in the wake of someone's death, a, a, a day's difference in the accounts seems to me like a trivial detail, but I just wanted to point that out in case we are wrong and someone is screaming at their iPhone or their computer right now. Mm-hmm. We chose to report Tuesday as the start of the trial, two days later, as this is what is more commonly reported. The most important thing here. But it's also commonly reported that she was leaving the meeting. Yes. And she wasn't. She was entering the meeting. But that is corrected in later Mm -hmm. uh, statements and later newspaper accounts. The important thing here about what this is, is, is being reported is that the judge in this case, in the divorce case, has ordered that the proceedings move forward, that there were to be no more continuances in this case. And that's because her lawyer kept on, he wasn't ready ever. So they had to keep keep pushing the date back and the date back. Yeah. And, and at some point, Gregory Moore is no longer interested in talking with police regarding the murder of his former client, Eliza. Mm-hmm. And this could be why, because Gregory Moore lands himself in some pretty hot water. He gets indicted, facing charges in a July 2012 bomb threat. That's, <laughs> wow. Can't and, make right, this up. I, I, know, I know people are like, why are you laughing at that? Um, well, because, because it's weird. Well, because he's such an <laughs> idiot that basically what would happen 
is he wouldn't be ready for the case. He wouldn't be ready for the trial. So what would he do? He'd call in bomb threats. Yeah, that's right. So and not just once, right? Yeah, so multiple he, times. He called in the old bomb threat. Typically, adults do not commit this sort of crime. Usually, we would be talking about an idiot teenage boy mm-hmm. calling in one of these to get some laughs from his nitwit friends. Yeah, or he, you know, uh, is not ready for a test or something. Or, How, or he has to climb the rope in gym class where now the boys are showering and so. He, he, he doesn't want to take showers with the boys, so he calls in the bomb threat. Well, yeah. Here we have a man in his early 40s and an upper-level attorney at what maybe not all but a good many would consider a successful law firm mm-hmm. being indicted for this sort of thing. The details of this thing are pretty simple. Moore called in three... He, he called in three bomb threats. to The first one... Well, I'm sorry, not the first one, but the last one... He called in bomb threats to three domestic relations court employees at the Cuyahoga County Court, this being in July of 2012. In this, the caller stated that a bomb was set and was about to explode in a specific courtroom. Mm-hmm. The crazy thing here was later, later, as you said, he's charged with two more of these same offenses. Allegedly, he called in bomb threats to a Ga- uh, Gallega County courthouse and a Lake County courthouse. Mm -hmm. The first was in January of 2012, the second in May of 2012, and the last one was that one in July of 2012. So the courtrooms were evacuated. No explosives were found, of course. But now, get this. All of the courtrooms receiving these threats was just like you said. Gregory Moore was due to appear in those courtrooms with clients on those particular days. Right. And here's what I wonder, Captain. If he did this once and he got away with it, is this the same thought as what we discussed regarding the 911 calls that were going on at the Sherman House? And what I mean by that is once you've crossed that threshold, does mm-hmm. it just make it that much easier to do it again and again? Does this become this like it seems like it became his go to? Like, oh, I'm no longer I'm not prepared to to enter this court case. Mm-hmm. My job could be on the line. My my license to practice law could be on the line. I'm going to, I'm going to call on a bomb threat. Oops. It worked once. That's what I do from now on. <laughs> Oops. It worked. <laughs> oops. It worked. Um, <laughs> well, I say, oops, I say, oops, it worked because this is destructive behavior. This is destructive <laughs> behavior. You think? Yeah. This is the definition of destructive behavior. No, this guy is incompetent. You know, it'd be it'd be like me, call, you know, hey, I'm not prepared to talk about the case today, so uh, let me call a bomb threat into the garage. That's what it was. I mean, this guy was somehow, you know, he got over his head. You know, he he didn't do the work. And, 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 and we saw this, you know, think about, uh, Lisa's statements saying that she was calling the the attorney and he wasn't calling her back and just little things like that. He, he had to find a way out. Now we have this case where we're going to trial Mm -hmm. and this is a pretty big divorce process. I mean, this is a wealthy family. And there's a lot of twists and turns here. We have this separate account that, you know, she claims she didn't know anything about. He needed to be ready. 
whether it's on that Monday or that Tuesday, he needed to be ready. So basically what we're getting at is that would be his motive. Mm-hmm. Because if she is injured or obviously dead, then there is no hearing. Right. They can't proceed. And <laughs> the funny, sorry, I, I keep laughing because when I think about this, I'm like, well, the court system already has something in place for this particular setup. When you're not prepared and you need more time, it's called you file a motion for continuance. Right. But but he had already done that so many times that this was to the point where the judge is like, nope, there will be no more continuances. We have to proceed with this. And I'm sure that's what took place. That's Elisa's case. I'm sure that's what took place in these other cases as well. And he panics. Mm-hmm. With the old go-to bomb threat. Right. And I think maybe um, he knew it wouldn't work in this case, maybe. You know, if he's responsible, then that I, I'm guessing that's what his thinking was. Mm-hmm. The, bomb, the old bomb threat uh, trick is not going to work this time. Well, I want to shift gears here just for a little bit, okay? Because we have a lot of suspicious behavior here. Um, we have the obvious motive making Aliza's husband, Sanford, a good suspect, we have some very, very odd behavior. Uh, <laughs> check that. Very times three odd behavior, criminal behavior mm-hmm. from Elisa's attorney, Gregory Moore. Plus, because his appointment with her would have, he would have been there or been in that area at the time, also making him a very good suspect. But I also wonder who were those five unnamed persons in Jennifer Sherman's lawsuit? The five unnamed persons that conspired with Sanford to set up that secret account that ended up worth $2 million. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder who that is. So there, there's so much to think about. And, and I, and we have to jump back to that lawsuit itself because there's also some very interesting information that will come out as a matter of depositions and testimony in that lawsuit brought forth by Jennifer Sherman against her father. Now we talked about the account, obviously the account was in Elisa's name. However, there was a power of attorney that gave Sanford control mm-hmm. of the account. And of course, access to the funds. Elisa had said she never signed the power of attorney. In fact, she added, why would she, why mm-hmm. would she sign this power of attorney? Sanford claimed that Elisa had in fact signed. Mm-hmm the power of attorney. He claimed this in his depositions. Now through the course of this in these proceedings, we have three witnesses that will give statements regarding that specific power of attorney. These are, uh, three names on that specific document other than Elisa's name and Sanford's name. The first was an employee of Sanford's. Mm -hmm. The next was a Merrill Lynch employee signed as a witness. And the last was the notary who was a different employee of Merrill Lynch. Mm -hmm. None of these three persons could recall if Aliza was actually present during any of the processes of signing that document, witnessing or notarizing that document. None of them could recall if she was actually there. Well, right. First of all, if you're the witness and she's not there, then you don't sign it. Second of all, if you're the notary, that's your job. Your job is to witness the signature. And so you have the, you have at least two people that basically are like, well, I don't know what happened. I don't remember. You didn't do your job. 
Right. And I, I mean, I understand that these, these court proceedings are taking place 17 years after the fact, but like you said, if these people were doing their job, it's a very simple answer. The answer is yet yeah, it was 17 years ago. However, I can tell you that of course she was there because as a witness, and I've witnessed many of these documents and signed my name to it. Mm-hmm. I have never signed my name when a person has not been present. Right. I have never notarized a document when the, when a signing individual, when a signee was not present for me to notarize that, that, that mm-hmm. document. Furthermore, a forensic document examiner hired by Jennifer Sherman corroborated her claim that it was highly likely that the signature on the power of attorney did not match samples of Aliza's handwriting. So according to the forensic accountant, his reports state that remember some of this money was moved. It was eventually moved from this account of Aliza's to Sanford's individual accounts. Mm -hmm. And he could do this because of that power of attorney. Well, according to the forensic accountants reports, $820,000 in damages were incurred by the transferring of funds from Elisa's account into Sanford's individual account. Some other strange stuff and some other possibly incriminating things to look at regarding Sanford are the court papers in connection with the daughter's civil suit over her mother's estate show Elisa wrote to a family friend stating, I am really afraid he is going to have me killed, obviously referring to Sanford, stating, I am afraid of him and what he will do. Jennifer also claims that she, the daughter, lives in fear of her father and is even afraid to go to a deposition because she may experience physical harm on her way to or from the deposition. Right. I mean, that's, you know, because she's speculating that Maybe her father had something to do with the death of her mother, and we saw what happened there. Sanford testified that from roughly 2006 to 2010, he had been having an affair with a woman who lived in New York and Florida, and that he had made several trips to visit her. Other testimony by some of Sanford's closest friends revealed that Sanford had been at the end of his rope and was emotionally distressed in the time leading up to Aliza's filing for a divorce. Now, remember, she filed for divorce at the end of, I believe it was 2011. Because remember, this these proceedings were extremely drawn out. But it's like I said, I mean, when she's beating up the car, that's signs that she knew that she was, you know, married to cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater, right? So, you know, I, I think this guy... uh he tends to be a selfish individual. I mean, he's going to have a four-year affair mm-hmm. with some lady that lives in New York and Florida. So now how much money are you spending that could go to your family and you're doing this for selfish reasons and then you don't want a divorce? Why? You know, that's, that's the easy thing, right? Uh, you're in love with this lady. You're going to New York and Florida. Uh why wouldn't you just get a divorce? Cut the money in half. Say, hey, it didn't work out. We tried. We had some kids together. You take this part of the money. I'll take this part of the money. We'll both live good lives. But he didn't want to do that because well, he's well, selfish. No, is that true, though? Because as we discussed in in episode two, he 
he did. He asked his friends and, and Aliza's friends to speak with her and try to convince her into settling the divorce, that they, that they just proceed with it. Right, but she filed first, and then he filed. Correct. Which I think is hilarious when people are like, oh, you, <laughs> it doesn't take two people to file for a divorce. You just one person files. But, again, what we said uh, in, in the last episode is – he he wasn't necessarily trying to get his buddies to convince her to settle a 50-50 deal that we know of. All we know is that he was telling people around her possibly to manipulate her. Hey, get her to agree. Get her to settle. Mm-hmm. Right? What is that settle? You see what I'm saying? Like, right. No, I get what, what you're saying. What was the deal on the table that he was trying to get people to convince her of? And for all we know, that it was not in favor of her at all. And hey, you, you, you dated a, you know, well, you married a guy that's verbally abusive and he's calling you names and he's cheating on you and he's taking money and hiding it from you and you find this out before. Why would you settle? You should, you know, she had every right to go in there and try to get everything every penny that she felt she was worth or, or or every penny that she thought she deserved. Mm -hmm. Well, Sanford and his friends, they claim in their depositions that Aliza may have worn recording devices to instruct uh, per instruction from her attorney and that she had tried to provoke Sanford into arguments so she could capture them on tape. Now there's more of this and the worst part, I find this to be the most damning of the evidence that is coming out against Sanford. Mm-hmm. This really does nothing for the lawsuit against Sanford, but this should be a huge red flag with a spotlight on it regarding the murder of Eliza Sherman. Okay, this was taken from another deposition. One of those same friends in their deposition claimed in more than one occasion Sanford inquired how someone could get away with committing a perfect murder. Mm. At least one of these conversations occurred during a walk on a Cleveland beach. The friend said that the friend Sanford asked this of, he was uh, worked in law enforcement or the law enforcement field. And when asked how the friend responded to such a question, the friend said he gave Sanford this scenario. Don't use your car or don't let your car be seen. Mm-hmm. Don't use a gun because it can be heard. Don't use your street clothes. Use something that would cover up your entire body, your face, your hands. Well, right. this is super chilling because it's describing what we see on the surveillance footage. We see, we see a person fleeing the murder scene with no vehicle. At no point do we see a vehicle. Mm-hmm. We see this person dressed head to toe in clothing that is covering the entire body, just as he said, the face, the hands. Mm-hmm. According to Sanford's deposition, he said he probably had conversations about Eliza, but could not recall the nature of those conversations or where they occurred. During Sanford's deposition, he was not asked directly about the perfect murder conversation. Sanford Sherman has never been named as a suspect in Aliza's murder. The bizarre twists continue, Captain, in this case. This twist mm-hmm. takes us back to Gregory Moore, Aliza's attorney. Bomb threats 
you know, remember he had the bomb threats, but there would be. <laughs> How can I forget? There would be. <laughs> hey, you remember this guy? He's a bomb. <laughs> he's the bomb threat guy. But he would later be indicted on more charges. Gregory Moore was indicted on one count of tampering with evidence, one count of obstructing official business, one count of <laughs> falsification, okay. one count of telecommunication telecommunications fraud, and two counts of forgery. <laughs> yeah, this guy's a scumbag. Yeah, but I think the the key thing here is a lot of these indictments have to do with a Lisa Sherman. Right. When when Gregory Moore was indicted, when the indictment was announced, the then prosecutor said in a statement, we believe that this indictment and the evidence behind it takes us one step closer to bringing Eliza Sherman's killer to justice. Right. So make no buts about it. This this has to do with her murder, with her case. Now Gregory Moore has denied these allegations. Originally, he pled not guilty. Uh, he was scheduled to appear in court in May of this year on unrelated charges. Those were from the the, the bomb threat charges, right, right. Uh, inducing panic. Inducing laughter. He was pleading not guilty to those charges as well. Now, let's talk about these new charges, because according to prosecutors, Gregory Moore never met with Eliza that day. Mm-hmm. They claim that he initially provided a statement to investigators that he was waiting in his office during the time of the attack. Right. But but data retrieved one year later with the help of the FBI. The old cell phone ping. Mm-hmm. They used this from a downtown cell tower. This suggested that he allegedly lied about his location and misled Eliza. Okay, th- that's important information all in that one sentence right there okay he allegedly lied about his location Mm -hmm. this means where he told police he was during the time of the attack but they also follow that up with misled eliza meaning he's telling her stuff in communication that is not true as well so he's lying he's Mm -hmm. lying to the victim minutes before she's killed right and then later the next day, lying to the police when questioned about where he was and what he was doing. Right. But then you mess with the motherfucking FBI and they caught you. So, so let's, I mean, to make this really clear, he is telling her, come down for a meeting on a Sunday, which offices are normally not open. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's telling her, come down. He's telling her that he is there. He is not there. He is somewhere else. So he is basically putting her in place. Is that door? Is she able to get into the building for safety? No. So he knows that wherever she parks, that she's going to have to walk. And remember, she like texted him or something because she didn't want to. Uh, she wanted to meet him down there mm-hmm. because she didn't want to stay in the cold because it was pretty cold out. So he knew that she had to walk from her car to the office building. But once she got to that office building, the door was going to be locked. So she's a sitting duck, right? That's basically what he set up. Would she have known that the door would have been locked? That's uh, here. Here's the reason why I question that. Uh, because I've seen some of the communication b- back and forth between them. 
And it almost appears to me like the, the door being locked was a surprise to her. And here's, here's why I think right. that that might be accurate. You know, when, when I used to work in downtown buildings, it was very typical that we would have front doors that would automatically lock at certain times and automatically unlock at certain times. Right. So if you're expecting a lot of people in and out, it's very tough for somebody to have their finger on that button and control the locking mechanism to let people in and out during normal business hours, Monday through Friday, when you're expecting a lot of people coming and going. Mm -hmm. But we also didn't want people just randomly showing up into the buildings. So typically at a certain hour, let's say seven o'clock at night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the door would automatically lock. And then someone had to control it. Somebody had to use a, a key card or a security personnel had to actually unlock that door physically to let someone in. Here's what I'm getting at. I wonder, I'm guessing that if this is how they chose to do their meetings, that she had been to this office on several occasions. Most of these occasions probably took place between Monday and Friday during typical business hours. Right. My guess is the door was locked at a certain time on Friday, 5, 6 p.m., and it was not unlocked until the start of business on Monday. Now, people that worked in the building, people that had cause to be there still have access, but they have to use a key card to enter or possibly even exit the building. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the, the problem with Gregory Moore's story is that the, I'm sure that the police found this before the FBI ever got to it. I think the FBI probably helped them with the cell with the cell tower situation, mm -hmm. but this is pretty simple information to get here. I think they had a record because there was, this was a key card system for this front door and they probably had a record of Gregory Moore coming and going that day, a little more insight into the communication between Eliza and Gregory Moore. It's my understanding that they were actually supposed to meet on the Saturday, not on the Sunday. They were scheduled to meet on that Saturday. I'm a little confused if that meeting actually took place. Well, no, I think he called in a bomb threat so they didn't have to have the meeting. Well, what I mean by that is at some point he has asked her to go to the office on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I don't know. Does that mean that the meeting went longer than scheduled and he said, Hey, let's finish this up tomorrow. Or did he not show up to the meeting or did he reach out to her and say, Hey, can't do this today. Let's do it tomorrow. Right. For whatever reason, they end up meeting on that Sunday. This is unscheduled in advance. Mm -hmm. The most this could be scheduled in advance was at some point on Saturday. And then on Sunday, more than once, from my understanding, they didn't go, I do not have the specific wording on this information, which was traded back and forth via text from Gregory Moore to Eliza Sherman. But at more than one occasion, he pushed back that meeting on Sunday as well. Mm -hmm. So again, but like I said, I mean, he basically created a scenario that she's going to, no matter what time they meet, you know, no matter if she knows if the door is locked or if she doesn't know it's locked. That's, I mean, neither here nor there for me. What he's doing is she, he's putting her in a situation where, you know, she's going to be, like I said, a sitting duck. Mm -hmm. Especially if she has to sit there at a, at a locked door that she didn't anticipate for it to be locked. 
that's just slowing her down on returning to her vehicle or getting into the, the building. Um, in, in the text messages that they exchanged, she is telling him, Hey, you know, I'm down here. The door's locked. Right. He says, okay, I'm on my way down to unlock the door. He's on the fifth floor of this building, but he's not. Well, he's supposed to be, his office is on the fifth floor. So she's going to sit there and wait for a while for him to come down and unlock the door. Eventually he never comes down there and she texts him back and says, look, it's cold outside. I'm returning to my car. Mm -hmm. So not only does he, he, I want to be very clear. He set up this meeting. This was not uh, uh, Lisa scheduling this meeting. He scheduled this meeting and then via text pretends to be in the location where he said he would be right to the point where she eventually says, look, it's cold out here. I'm walking back to my car. Right. Well, and this is a guy that doesn't return your calls, doesn't return your emails. You've had to have continuance after continuance because he's not ready. I mean, you know, she had a good lawyer before that she was happy with. And now she has this guy and she doesn't want this lawyer anymore, but it's too late in, you know, late in the game. So to be clear, prosecutors alleged that Gregory Moore sent Aliza text messages stating that he was in his office at the time she was attacked, but phone records, electronic key card data, and witness statements show that Gregory Moore left his, his office one hour before Aliza's, Aliza was murdered and didn't return until one hour after police found her bleeding outside. When investigators attempted to follow up with Gregory Moore regarding his whereabouts, he refused to cooperate. He started refusing to cooperate after they presented this information to him saying, Hey, look, you told us a story before a made up story before we want the real deal this time. Mm-hmm. Moore has denied that he lied to Eliza or the police. Right. But we have it on record that he lied to her. And one investigator said that, uh, re- in referring to Gregory Moore said he's got some questions to answer and hopefully that will come out in court. He's not talking to us, but if you don't have anything to hide, why wouldn't you talk to us? Yeah, but this guy seems like a weasel. So I I really think if they hold his feet to the fire, they're going to get some more information. So clearly these are the two that are the main suspects in the eyes of the public, and I think rightfully so. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot on both of these guys. And what I think is starting to show through and shine through a little bit here is that it looks to me like police and law enforcement are awfully suspicious about Gregory Moore in particular. So there's there's all, there's so much to think about here, and we have a lot more to get to, and it looks like we'll have to get to that in episode four. If you would like to check out our merchandise in our old episodes as well as bonus episodes, you can do that by going to truecrimegarage.com. And I hope this four-parter is helping everybody out through the holiday work week. Yeah, we will see you back here in the garage for episode four. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. 
at 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 